0: less than three weeks to Election Day, and we have Seth Richardson in the house to talk about how the mayor's race is going. It's this week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. Along with Seth Richardson, we have Laura Johnston and Lisa Garvin. I'm Chris Quinn. Good morning. Happy Wednesday, everybody.
1: Happy Wednesday.
0: Wednesday. Let's roll. We got some stuff to talk about. How did a Washington law firm end up being a key lobbyist and writer of the corrupt HB6? And where do these revelations come from? Laura Johnston, this is a story Jeremy Pelzer published this very morning based on documents released late yesterday.
1: Yeah, absolutely. The law firm Aiken, Gump, Strauss, Hauer and Feld LLP had to submit these at the request of the judge, the bankruptcy court judge, Alan Koschick, in order to get the last bit of money out of um, First Energy Solutions, they are owed another $1.2 million and $68 million in fees and expenses. They did so much work on HB6. I'm reading Jeremy's story just thinking, oh my gosh, they, they made this happen. They did lobbying efforts. They set up massive political donations. They helped write the bill. They had almost daily calls between First Energy and Ohio-based consultants on how to respond to the strenuous opposition of HB6. They worked on the messaging, which makes me think... They must have had something to do with those red scare ads that were all over the TV. I mean, this this firm, like, made this happen
0: what's what's amazing about this is that you're listening to the amount of money paid to them. You right. had that the sixty million in bribes that first energy paid all to subvert the best interest of Ohioans. So the legislature was crooked. and first energy was crooked. And this law firm was using everything at its disposal to subvert. The will of the people and this is going to end up being the textbook example of how to corrupt government to enrich the few at the expense of the many you know the law firm is saying we didn't do anything wrong this is what we normally do we weren't aware of any anything crooked the
1: most damning statement in the story that they thought this was normal so how much is this happening over and over again out of sight of the public eye can i just name a couple of things that they said they did in these documents They helped track which lawmakers were for or against the bill, how many votes they expected different parts of the legislation to get. They organized, quote unquote, grassroots outreach, which that's an oxymoron, developed letter writing campaigns and talking points, prepared witness testimony for legislative committees, and they organized HB6 demonstrations and support at the state house from members of the communities near the davis Bessie and Perry nuclear plants. So all this stuff that was like, from the people was just them pulling strings
0: it was all fake the whole thing was fake and it worked i mean the legislators just fall prey to the lobbyists if i were a legislator and a lobbyist came near me i'd put up a shield it's like there's no good can come of this go away i'm going to vote my conscience and do right by the people and instead law firms like this make
1: tens of millions
0: of dollars to subvert our best interests. It's a great story. Check it out on cleveland.com. Can I, can
1: I add one last point that I thought was really funny is that apparently this law firm was also advising First Energy on quote, unquote, bipartisan relationship building. I was like, I'm sorry. I, I They failed at that part. I saw no bipartisan anything at the statehouse.
0: You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Who's the Northeast Ohio lawmaker proposing to legalize recreational marijuana? How would that work? And does the proposal have a chance of passing? Seth Richardson, do we have a clear view on how this ends? Well, this is a nice little transition from the HB6 talk we just had
2: because uh, Representative Jamie Callender of Lake County is one of the primary sponsors of this bill that would legalize uh, recreational cannabis in Ohio. Um, You know, does it have a chance like that? That's something I keep wondering to myself, because politically speaking, I think it makes a lot of sense for Republicans to really get behind this. Um, But I guess it sort of depends you know how they think they're going to be able to like turn people out, but I mean, you you consistently look at really any polling, and just I mean, even like culturally speaking, right? And it it seems like the country has really moved quite a bit um, toward legalization ever since uh, you know Colorado did, and you know Jamie Callender is a Republican, and he even said himself that yeah, you know, I'm more of a libertarian mindset, you know, so like like any other, you know, alcohol, cigarettes, tobacco, or even, you know, sugar, uh, you know, you, you should be able to, um, you know, have control over what goes into your body. And I, I do think that there is a larger subset of the Republican Party, which has traditionally been against marijuana legalization, that, uh, you know, does have that more libertarian mindset. So uh, the, the real big question, I guess, is, uh, you know, does it get a hearing? That's, that's kind of what I wonder.
0: Well, we talked when the the ballot initiative started to legalize marijuana, put it on the ballot next November, Mm -hmm. whether the strategy really was to get the Republicans to pass legalized marijuana because they don't want that Democratic block of votes coming to support legalized marijuana. You also do see massive revenue uh, in in Mm -hmm. Michigan and Pennsylvania where it's legal. Uh, Ohioans are driving into Michigan to to get their their marijuana. So there's a revenue ploy, there's a political ploy. But like you said, that there's a whole bunch of kind of fringe right Republicans in the legislature that may have a hard time actually casting a vote to legalize drugs.
2: I actually think that some of the folks that you like that, that maybe we consider fringe right might actually be more inclined to uh, you know, legalize marijuana, vote to legalize marijuana because they do kind of come from that whole libertarian mindset. Now, whether like the the, the question is, do they come, do they approach this from the like, like the sort of true, quote unquote, libertarian mindset or are they, you know, do they still associate marijuana and pot with, you know, crime and, uh, you know, poverty and all those sorts of things that that is sort of a big question. But I think the revenue stream is also a pretty important aspect of this because, you know, you you look at Ohio is missing out on a lot of revenue streams that it, you know, neighboring states, you know, have and right. Sports you know, like gambling, sports gambling and marijuana right. probably being the two biggest, right? And you know, at some point, I I think there's going to have to. There already already is a discussion, obviously, but I I think at some point somebody is probably going to see down the way, like, hey, why are we missing out on these revenue streams when, you know, places like Michigan and Pennsylvania, uh, you know, Indiana doesn't have legal marijuana, but has sports betting. But, you know, these sort of vice things that were once really taboo and, you know, aren't so much anymore. Uh, I, I think you're going to see kind of a shift there. Now, the no, other.
0: But I, mean, I was talking to Jeremy Pelzer yesterday in our State House Bureau, and he said he thinks this can pass the House, but it might have a much more difficult time in the Senate, which would be interesting. But even if it passed both houses, Mike DeWine would have to sign it or, yeah, that... or approve it. And he's in a reelection battle. I'm not sure he wouldn't veto this, and then would there be enough votes to override a veto? I don't think the supermajority would matter here. I think I think you could stumble. So I don't. Has anybody asked Mike DeWine lately about what he thinks of this? Well, that that, he's against it, right? He's been pretty clear.
2: Yeah, that was my next. I was going to go into that, that that is the big hurdle, right? Can you get a super majority? Uh, Maybe in the House. I kind of doubt it. Uh, The Senate is a much more difficult lift. I would agree with Jeremy on that part. Uh, You know, DeWine has been against legalizing drugs for a long time. Like he has never been in favor of it. And I don't expect, I don't, I don't know that anybody has asked him directly about this, uh, recently, but I don't expect that he would, uh, you know, change course on that. Cause he's always been sort of a, you know, a law and order kind of guy, right. He's, um, you know, he really ran on kind of being the guy who was tackling the opioid epidemic. And, um, I, I think that he still has this kind of antiquated view of, uh, you know, marijuana, where, it's, you know, like some of these debunked studies about gateway drugs and things like that, really like the old, you know, DARE programs from back in the day. So I
0: would, uh, you know, I, I don't I'd... know, Seth, I don't know you could say that that clearly there. There is some evidence that people move on. Part of the problem in America is because of our antiquated laws. Nobody could research marijuana in a way to figure out what the long term effects are. And so a lot of states have legalized marijuana without having the true research and experience they need. That's why there's such a debate on this is you really don't know what the result will be. The states that have legalized it, it's still fairly new. I guess Colorado was one of the first and we're still awaiting the research. So I don't think you could just say that that's a debunked study. I think there are people that would be able to put up studies that show that for some people... Um, addiction is addiction, and it is a move into the more serious drugs. Anyway, it's interesting. It's going to be good to see this debate, and I think that's what the framers of the ballot question were, were seeking. So they're they're already score one for them. They're winning. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Why is Ohio seeking record numbers of school board candidates in 2021? Our Johnston, school board candidates have always been these sleepy things, mostly involving people who just want to do something good for their kids no more. Now it's a whole bunch of crazy people fighting with those people who want to do good for their kids.
1: Absolutely. And my community is one that this is happening that Hannah Drowned uh, looked at closely. She interviewed 20 candidates in five districts to really dig deep into the phenomenon of what is going on. And these races are really just pitting neighbors against neighbors in some really divisive issues, namely masking and critical race theory and those are the two big ones. The state has seen this all over the place. There's a 50% increase in candidates since the, since the 2017 election 4 years ago. In Cayuga County, school board races were on the decline between 2001 and 2017. Now, we have more people running than the county's seen in two decades. 140 people for 83 spots in 30 public school districts, which is kind of mind-boggling. And here's my
0: is, here's my question. Is is it clear which candidates are the anti-mask, anti-vax yes. fringe people? I mean, so when when people go to the polls, I mean, I, in Cleveland Heights, I'm just voting for the incumbents because I know they're not fringe nut jobs and I don't want fringe nut jobs running the school. But but how do people know who to vote for uh, it, unless the literature is clear? Like, are you getting postcards from the anti-vax yes. fringe people saying I'm anti-vax?
1: We are getting postcards. I wouldn't say they're that blatant about the anti-vax, but we are getting postcards from both sides. And one of the, people are running in tickets. Like there's three uh, candidates running together in Rocky River whose platform is education, not Mm. advocacy. So that's a very probably PC way of saying they don't want They're against critical race theory, even though critical race theory is not taught
0: in the school. I would not pick that up. I I would not realize that that's the critical race theory crazies. I mean, that's the problem. I think voters going to the polls is who's defining for them, Okay, this is the group of candidates that has kids in the schools that wants to work on education. This is the group that's bringing their personal politics from Facebook into the the debate. How do you know? I mean, well.
1: I do think that people are really tuned in, and I'm not saying everyone is, but the library had a forum for our town that everybody watched, everybody talked about. People who are not normally political, who literally don't know what's going on, went to the library forum, and then literally at parties later saying, can you believe what so-and-so said? Can you believe what they did? We're talking about a very engaged population here, and that's what I say about neighbors pitting against neighbors. Like It is a big topic of conversation, and so people know The background because they're talking to other people about the platforms. And I don't I don't know what's happening in other communities, but I think people have been pretty blatant about where they stand on this. I mean, Chagrin Falls, you had the person that ran the sign in the airplane that said, you know, don't muzzle our kids like these are not subtle messages.
0: Right. But I in Cuyahoga County, except maybe for Strongsville, which has gone wackadoo. I, I think most people do not favor bringing this kind of politics into the school district. I mean, one, no school district is teaching critical race theory. That's the preposterous Correct. thing. They're in there going, we're not going to have critical race theory. It's not being taught. And and most people in Cuyahoga County, I think, are reasonable and sane and want their schools to to be focused on education. It's just having the voters know which candidates are trying to inject all this Trumpy Trumpy kind of thought into the school board races. That's the challenge.
1: I agree with I agree with that. But I do think there are a lot of people that care about masks and they don't want they either they either want their kids wearing masks and they want a mandate or they don't want a mandate. And that's become this very critical issue. And that is something a school board has some say over. I loved this quote, though, from A Chagrin Falls School Board, he said, I think they're going to be pretty disappointed when they find out you're not negotiating political agendas. Critical race theory isn't our agenda. It's not something we contemplate doing. So if they're on there to vote down critical race theory, they're going to be waiting a long time.
0: One wrinkle in the mask debate is is that any day the FDA is going to improve the vaccine for kids five and older, which once the kids are vaccinated, the mask worry becomes much less. Right now, everybody who wants their kids to wear masks Is saying it because they don't want them to get sick. They're vulnerable. They're not protected. But the minute that happens, all of those people that are actually worried about their kids, they're going to get them vaccinated. The mask issue becomes less of an issue. It's still an issue, but you know, we we all still wear them when we go to the grocery store, but it's less of an issue. Interesting story. Check it out on Cleveland.com. It's by Hannah Drown. You're listening to this week in the CLE. How is the Greater Cleveland Regional Transit Authority proposing to verify that passengers on trains and some buses have paid their fares? Lisa Garvin, I had forgotten about the court ruling that said police can't do it because because they're police. It's a violation of the Fourth Amendment right against search and seizure. I'm surprised the RTA didn't appeal that because it seems like you can ask people on the bus to show that they paid their fares but they can't. And so they've come up with a solution. What they're going to do is is take
3: a softer approach. They're going to hire 10 transit ambassadors and social workers who will be on the busiest lines like health line and, and the uh, rapid transits seven days a week from like seven to 10. And uh, they will be just, you know, asking people about their fares. They will be unarmed. They will be uniformed. But yeah, there was a seven, a 2017 ruling uh, from the municipal court um, that said that, yeah, Uh, transit cops asking people for fares was a violation it it was against unreasonable seats and search and seizure. So, but these transit ambassadors cannot arrest or detain anybody. They can only ask you, you know, have you paid your fare? Can you please pay your fare? In the in the interim, after this ruling, they were having bus drivers do the fare enforcement, but that slowed down the health line quite a bit. So they had to jettison that idea. So they're gonna, it's a pilot program. They're gonna start it sometime next year. And we'll just see how it goes. But quite honestly, I, you know, in Houston, when they had cops get on the train and try to enforce fares, people got ugly. So I'm worried, you know, I guess the the social workers will be there for crisis intervention. But, you know, some people don't take kindly to be asked to pay a fare. I, I just hope that these transit ambassadors will be safe.
0: Well. Well, think think about this. This is a whole new level of cost. You got to pay for these people, and they're not going to generate the revenue that pays their bills. So this is another expense for RTA. And there been there has been talk for a few years now, and part of Cleveland Rising, about since we already subsidize nearly ninety percent of RTA with the sales tax, not through fares. Why not just make it complete, make it free, get rid of the infrastructure of fares, not pay people to check on fares, get rid of the machinery and all the work that goes into it and finish the subsidy? How attractive would that be as an economic development tool? How would that be for making making commuting equitable to people that can't afford transportation? This is another expense. For RTA and they're they don't have any money. I I you know I, they got stimulus money I guess, but they've been they've been having severe financial troubles. Why not finish the subsidy? You know Armin Budish wants to to continue the sales tax increase to pay for the jail since the sales tax already pays for most RTA. Why don't you use that sales tax extension to make it free completely? instead of creating a whole new level Well, uh, and that's a very radical
3: idea and a very interesting one that deserves exploration. RTA did say that the funding for these 10 positions would come from the police budget, that, that apparently they have unfilled positions, so they would use money for those positions to pay for this. So I guess there is something in the budget, but I mean, that's a radical idea, Chris. I mean, let's do a story on it.
0: Yeah, well, we should. We'll take a look at what it co- what is the machinery of fares costing them, and if you took it away, what would it take to make it free? It's not my idea. This came from smarter people than me, and in, in Cleveland Rising, there was a major part of that because everybody's trying to talk about how do we make things more equitable in Northeast Ohio. Well, that's a way. And look, we already you're paying for most of it. It's like it's like it barely generates any money from fares for its budget. Anyway, you're listening to this week in the CLE. Okay, Seth Richardson, who does a Baldwin Wallace University poll show is leading handily in the Cleveland's mayor's race? And what is the caveat? We we know that polling is less reliable today than it was 10 and 20 years ago and so we don't spend a whole lot of time thinking about it nobody really invests much time in in giving it a lot of weight but baldwin wallace is one of the more credible organizations doing it what did they find
2: well they found Bib had a uh, about a, a little more than a nine percentage point advantage over kelly uh, kevin kelly that is and um you know Justin Bibb was at 34.5%. Kevin Kelly was at 24.9%. But, you know, probably the, uh, the bigger number to pay attention to in this poll is that 40% of respondents said they were still undecided, um, you know, with less than three weeks left to go until the election. So, you know, I think a lot of people are obviously still making up their mind. And while it does seem, you know, most things seem to point to Bibb having at least, um, you know, a slight advantage at the very least, um, you know there's 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 still a lot of room to grow for uh for really both candidates it's, if this poll is accurate
0: yeah that my my problem was that with it was how many of those people are actually going to vote and are how how do you reach all of the the people who you can't reach through traditional means so i mean how accurate is it of a measure of not only who's winning, who's losing, but, but who is undecided. That's the problem, is how, how do you reach people? I mean, I talked to, what, 417 people, right? And does that cover all of the different groups of people that are energized by this? election and I I don't know what the answer is there well yeah so yeah you know 400 and I think it was 419 uh which
2: is a statistically significant uh sample size right as far as the you know the science behind it that that does look you know fairly sound right um you know one I actually got a hold on hold on
0: it's not it's fairly sound for the greater population but if you break the population into groups, I'm not so sure it is. I mean, there there's you know, there's an energized group of voters over in Tremont and Ohio City that are that are for bib that will vote in larger numbers than maybe elsewhere in the city. Does the poll capture that? I I doubt it can. And, and how do you know you're reaching a representative sample of those neighbors or in West Park? Are you reaching a representative sample of, of the Kelly supporters over there? Uh, It's just hard. I mean, I think I think we've seen for the past 10, 15 years, polls have not been all that helpful in figuring out who's going to win.
2: I I will say this. So I I do think that actually, I think this poll may have oversampled bib supporters a little bit. And just to give a little bit of background into the poll, uh, you know, you talk about the uh, the supporters who I would say are demographically very similar to myself, right? I'm a 32 year old who lives in the near west side in Gordon Square. I actually got called for this poll on my cell phone um, and you know I don't I don't do web panel polls or anything like that so uh, I, I do have to imagine that a lot of the you know that some of those people were reached out to I'm I actually think that the harder population to poll um, is uh, you know poorer. Clevelanders frankly because um, you know they may not have the means of communication that uh, you know somebody who lives on the near west side or who lives downtown or something like that has they they maybe don't have a landline or they don't have a a regular cell phone plan or they don't have regular access to the internet or they frankly just don't have time to you know take out of their day and answer a poll so I think that is probably where maybe the uh, the bigger blind spot is in this and it's, it's really hard to deter and I mean Also, like you said, uh, trying to determine who is and is not going to vote, like what kind of increase are we going to see from the primary to the general?
0: Well, yeah, I mean, that's the problem is when voter turnout is this low, as it generally is in city elections, it's hard to measure. What was Bibb's lead over Kelly in the primary?
2: Uh, Bibb uh, had a, I I believe it was around 10 points, uh, 10,
0: 10 percentage points. So he's maintaining that in this poll. Okay, good stuff. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What's the latest bill to taxpayers for Cuyahoga County Executive Armin Budish's notorious mismanagement of the Cuyahoga County Jail? Lord Johnston, a reader, sent me a note today saying, will you please add up the total cost of all of these lawsuits? And we will. The estimate is quickly becoming $100 million. $100 million because Armand Budish saw the jail as a profit center and allowed it to be mismanaged into a torture chamber, and we are paying a huge bill for his incompetence. What's the latest?
1: Yeah, absolutely. This is $190,000 to pay a settlement to a Euclid man who was injured in this unprovoked beating from jail guards in 2018. That's the year that eight inmates died in the jail, and one of more than two dozen lawsuits from the last two years, which, yes, are completely adding up. But Devon Bean and the county announced this agreement They before they went took the case before U.S. District Judge John Adams. This is kind of crazy. According to the lawsuit, Devon Bean had joked that the officers took their jobs very seriously when he was getting changed into his jail uniform. And then an officer punched him and another one shot pepper spray in his mouth and face. And then... You know, he, he got hit so hard, he blacked out while he was pulling on his pants. So it's not like he was attacking the guards. He was trying to joke with them, and they hit him, according to the lawsuit. Yeah,
0: The numbers just keep adding up. Amazingly, Armin Budish is out seeking support because he is going to run for re-election. And he's trying to explain to people that all the bad things that they've read about him, it's because we at The Plain Dealer and Cleveland.com are out to get him which is ridiculous. I mean, I hear from people all the time. They don't want him to run again. They they want him gone. And I just, I think about the advertisements, the political ads that can be, that will most certainly appear that say, Armin Budish has blood on his hands because of his zeal to profiteer off of the jail. He made it so dangerous, eight people died. Or the man that Armin Budish named to get profit out of the jail is serving nine months in jail because of the torture chamber they created? How does he think he can win in the face of those truths? In addition to all the other incompetence we've written about with contracts and my God, it's a, it goes on and on and on. Yeah, and he's out there actually believing he has a chance to be reelected.
1: You have to think about the mindset of these guards, like what they were working in day in and day out, that you could be this so callous to human life because like after they broke this guy's jaw, then he, they didn't even treat the injuries. It wasn't like I was mad and I'm sorry. Like what was it like working in this jail that this was normal?
0: Yeah, I know. It's, it's what happens when you, I mean, a jail is never a profit center. It's always going to cost you money because you have wards that you have to care for. That's, that's the role of government. It's service, not profit. And and he saw dollars and it created this incredibly dangerous situation. And it's just mind boggling that we're going to be talking about this for the next year because he's running. I, I just cannot believe, given his record, that he thinks voters will, will cast ballots for him. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What should we expect when a bunch of Republican candidates for Senate in Ohio face off in person Thursday in the southwest part of the state? Seth Richardson, I think this might be the first time they're all on a public stage together. Uh, Yeah, you know, I think I think you're well, we should note that
2: not all of them are going to be on the stage together, right? Uh, Matt Dolan will not be there. But yeah, as far as uh, Josh Mandel, JD Vance, Bernie Moreno, Jane Timken, Mike Gibbons, I, I believe you you're correct. I think it might be the first time they are on a stage together, at least in kind of a uh, forum debate setting of sorts. And, um, you know, this is uh, this is being hosted by, um, you know, Jack Windsor's outlet. I think most people are pretty familiar with uh, Jack Windsor and his, um, uh, what should we call it, his his brand of uh, media, um, so to speak.
0: Well, what- familiar because he, <laughs> until he was banned from the Capitol Press Corps because he wasn't really a member of it, he was a regular questioner in Mike DeWine's daily coronavirus briefings always asking the loaded question and and i mean i guess it was entertaining for some it got in the way of getting coronavirus information from the governor because he had to waste time with it
2: yeah a lot of uh, a lot of pseudo journalism coming out of him um and you know what what can we expect i i expect that we're gonna see you know probably what we've seen kind of throughout this whole race, right? We're going to probably see some candidates going after each other. I think, you know, specifically, I think you're probably going to see Josh Mandel be pretty aggressive. Um, and there's going to be a lot of uh, real basic red meat talk as well, right? It's going to be critical race theory talk. It's going to be vaccine mandates talk. It's going to be, uh, you know, socialism. I bet you hear that word quite a bit when, you know, if somebody watches that and there, there are multiple uh, multiple of these things scheduled. So
0: well, uh, let me ask you this though. They all have almost the exact same message, not Matt Dolan, who won't be there, but the rest of them in every communication, they're all identical. They're all, you know, worshiping at the altar of Donald Trump and whatever he says, they all mirror it. How do, how do they differentiate it? You think they just, they're going to say, see who can say the most outrageous thing to, to try and stand out? No, I think the way that, well, I mean, there's going to be some of that for
2: sure. But I think the way that we've seen, you know, these candidates kind of try to differentiate themselves is basically a, a sort of like no true Scotsman fallacy that they sort of use where it's like, no, they're not the uh, they're not the Trump candidate. I'm the Trump candidate. You're going to see a lot of that, essentially, like uh, people saying, oh, they're a fake Trump supporter. Or they did. They did X. They did Y. They did Z, whatever. Um, you know, people will attack, you know, you know, J.D. Vance for, you know, basically saying he would vote for Hillary back in the day. They're going to attack, you know, Jane Timken for her uh, you know, her support of Anthony Gonzalez before she flip-flopped on it when she decided to run for Senate. Those are the kinds of things that you're probably going to see um, where whether where they will try to uh, draw a little space between that it's and but, others. But,
0: you know, the truth is it's not even interesting. You know, sometimes when you have a good political battle, the theater is interesting, but, but this is pathetic. And so, I, I mean, I... I'd hate to be the reporter to have to cover this because it, it's just it's it's like children arguing, you know, that they should have the blue ball instead of the pink ball. I, just, I mean, I I just I see so yeah. little value here. They're not talking about anything substantive. They're not talking about anything genuine. They're just using their tired talking points. They they want to be Donald Trump. Donald Trump knew how to tug the heartstrings. Mm -hmm. He created a big club for people to feel like it was something to belong to where they couldn't join any other club. He welcomed them in, made them feel like they were part of something and they could talk from a a position of superiority that all of the rest of the country is a bunch of snowflakes that are pathetic. None of these folks have that ability. None of them have that understanding of human nature. So they're just like hollow shadows of Donald Trump parroting Phrases without any real meaning to them.
2: Well, it's like they're, uh, you know, I, I described it. I believe in a piece I did is arguing over the, uh, you know, who gets to sit at the popular kids' table, and you know, to use another, I guess, um, uh, a metaphor from childhood, it's it's sort of like a a debate. You know, everybody's basically saying that their dad can beat up the other person's dad, but they don't all realize that they have the same dad in a way. It's it's just kind of like this circular argument of sorts that. Um, you know, I, there there hasn't been much discussion on the issues that I've really seen.
0: All right. Well, we'll have to see how it's going. I think uh, Andrew Tobias is going to go down and cover it for us. It's going to be fun to see how we write that story while leaving out all of the ridiculous quotes that are just made to get coverage. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Thanks, Seth. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks to everybody who listens to this podcast.